want to take you back to the year 1996, which is going to date me just a little bit. It was the senior year of high school, and it was time for senior class president election. And there were three candidates for the senior class uh, election of Berkeley Springs High School in 1996. The first was John Shirley, who was uh, a red-haired young man who was humble, who was smart, and was who loved by all the teachers. Then there was Gwen Fowler, also a redhead, who was sweet, very organized, and who was loved by all the parents. And then there was a third candidate, not, not so godly of a person, who was me. And um, both of them, John and Gwen, had great promises about how they were going to help academics and how they were going to help parent and student relations and all kinds of things like that. I ran my campaign slightly differently. I had two slogans for my campaign. The first was, vote for Kel because he'll raise hell. And the second was, stomp the redheads. (laughs) Many of my posters were taken down throughout the campaign. But I won the campaign. (laughs) I won the election that day. And I won't won't forget, they had the three of us, John and Gwen and myself, standing in front of the whole student body. And it was time for voting, and we did by raise of hands, and it was was enough that I, I won without having to do a recount. And you could just see all of the teachers just went, oh, just shaking their head. Because the guy who certainly shouldn't have won did win. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a humorous picture, but that is, that is how I live my life. I made a big joke out of life. I kind of made fun of people a lot. And you know what? In the world, you can, you can win that way. You can kind of just take things by, uh, yeah, by, by, um, by grabbing them and trying to, to force things in. You can look down on others and make fun of others. That was basically what what marked my entire life. Before I knew Christ, I was a self-exalting, manipulative person. Um, I didn't honor God. I didn't honor other people. The problem was that it often worked. And that was one of the things that deceived me as I was a non-Christian. That I, I saw myself, life was kind of working for me until I met Jesus. And I began to read through his word and to see that things don't work like that in the kingdom of God. That life's not a big joke. The way that you treat other people actually does really matter. And that if you seek to exalt yourself, especially at the expense of God and of others, that God will make it his business to humble you. But that he delights in humbling or exalting those who will humble themselves under his hand. And that's exactly what we see here in the Gospel of Luke. As we come back to Luke chapter 14, we've entered into the final year of Jesus' ministry. What we're going to see here is is the miracles that he's been performing so regularly are, are, are slowing down. He's not doing as many miracles anymore. And his warnings about judgment, they're beginning to increase. His parables are also beginning to increase. We're getting to a section here where there's a whole bunch of, mirac- of, of parables, and, and the reason is not because Jesus loved to tell stories. He did it actually as a form of judgment to hide truth from people who were just kind of in the crowd, kind of seeing if they could, could just learn something from Jesus to help their lives be better. We're also going to begin to notice here that the conflict with the religious leaders is beginning to increase because we're heading to a moment less than a year from now um, when Jesus will be executed on a cross. And along the way, what Jesus is doing is he is crying out and saying, if you want to make it to the kingdom of God, you don't do things the way that the world does them. There's a different way to enter into the kingdom of God. Which brings us to our big idea this morning. For Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, it's this. That God's kingdom is given to the humble in heart and is withheld from those who exalt themselves. God's kingdom is given to the humble in heart, but it is withheld from those who exalt themselves. 
Now, our scene this morning in Luke chapter 14 takes place over a Sabbath brunch. Uh, Jesus had been invited there, and what we're going to do is we're going to watch Jesus interact with, with everybody who is, is there. And the conversation and the focus of the conversation is going to kind of make three shifts. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see him um, dealing with and blessing an unexpected guest, a man who has a disease called dropsy. And then in verses 7 through 11, he's going to turn his attention to, to all of the guests who are there, and he has a word for them about humility. And then in verses 12 down through 24, he's, he's going to have a one-on-one session in front of everybody with the host of the brunch. And as we walk through this, we're going to, we're going to see this big idea that, that God's kingdom is given to the humble in heart, and it is withheld from those who exalt themselves. Let's begin here in chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus blesses an unexpected guest. One Sabbath when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him, the man with dropsy, and he healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately put him out? And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus is invited to to this, this, this dinner party, but it's not just any dinner party. This is an exclusive event. The religious elite of the day are the people who are on this, this guest list. You'll notice there that he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, you'll remember, were an influential religious group. They were the religious conservatives of the day. They took a very literal interpretation to the Scriptures. They gave very strong emphasis to obeying the commands, so much so that they were known for making up a bunch of rules to put around the rules just to make sure that you didn't break God's rules. Well, the host of this dinner is none other than one of the leaders in the synagogue. Okay, now, the synagogue, you'll remember, think of as like church without sacrifices. So it was different than the temple, but it was a place where the, the Torah was read and people talked about how it would apply to your, your everyday life. Well, these Pharisees were popular with, with the people. And you've got to remember that Torah, the, the, the law, the first five books of, of the Bible, they ruled both religious and social life. There was no division between sacred and secular. So how you thought about obeying the commands affected not just what you did on the day of worship, but every single day and every interaction that you ever had with anyone or anything in the world. Now, we don't know what place of authority exactly this ruler held. We don't know if he was an official, whether he was the head of the whole deal, or whether he was the high priest. But all we know is that he's prominent. And he's invited other influentials to this brunch with Jesus. The reason he would have done this is because Jesus was popular, right? I mean, he's been doing miracles, he's been teaching, he's been uh, causing a stir among everybody. He's got a great following, so they want to bring him in to have a word with him. Well, you'll notice that the other prominents who are there are the the lawyers. These are the seminary uh, professors of the day, and then there's other Pharisees. Now, why do you think they were having Jesus over? You see in verse 1 here that they were, they were doing something. They were watching him carefully. Careful observation of this Jesus guy. They're studying his every word, his every move, but not because they want to learn from him. What do they want to do with this Jesus guy? They want to trap him. They want to discredit him. Because if you can discredit him, then everybody's going to stop following Jesus and they're going to come back to synagogue. It's also really important to notice when is this brunch going down? What day? This is on the Sabbath. It's a Saturday. The Sabbath is very important in Jewish life. It's the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. People rested from work in order to rest in God. Certainly, they were to worship God every day, but it was, one, it was a day that was set aside to have an intentional resting. 
It's a humbling of yourself under God, trusting that he'll continue to provide for you even when you're not working, that God will continue to make the the, the crops grow, and he will take care of things while you rest in him. Well, the Pharisees took this command to rest, and they corrupted it. And the way they corrupted it was by loading up rules that God didn't give, so much so that it became an oppressive system where you're always walking around on the Sabbath paralyzed with fear, wondering if you're going to break one of the Pharisees' you know, hundreds of rules about the Sabbath, and it creates this culture where everybody is scared to death. This is what legalism does. It's life-taking. It's an unloving thing. And this was the environment in which Jesus is doing His ministry. Well, in God's providence, there is an unexpected guest in verse 2. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. Now, the word behold there, it's, it's kind of an explanation point, emphasizing the fact that this man's presence was not expected there. I mean, of all people, he was the least likely to be on the guest list, to be at an elite dinner. He was no Pharisee. This man was an outcast. He would have been excluded from this party. Now, Dropsy is basically, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a condition in which there's a collection of, of fluid in the body that makes the limbs of your, your body swell up. It's very uncomfortable. And some rabbis taught that if you had this condition, guess why? Because of sin. That this is most certainly some sort of judgment from God because they've done something. So you have an unexpected guest who is here. He is physically afflicted, and he is a spiritual outcast. Now, why is he there? Maybe it's just God's kind providence. Or maybe God's kind providence was working with the the deceitfulness of the Pharisees, in which God is going to use what these evil men have intended for a great purpose. The way I read it, I think it's almost certain that he was invited by the Pharisees. Not as a guest, but as as a means to trap Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 11, verse 54, Luke uh, tells us that the religious leaders were trying to catch Jesus in something he might say. So we don't know how they did it. They don't know if they told this man, hey, Jesus the healer is coming over. Why don't you show up for dinner and maybe we'll see if he will, will heal you. We don't know, but what we do know is that in either way, God's providence puts this man with dropsy there. And Luke wants you to see, behold, this is a surprising thing. Now, it's interesting here because the Pharisees don't say anything. But Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. Verse 3, Jesus says he, he responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. Notice he responded to them. They didn't say anything. He goes, I know what you're thinking. This is the problem, by the way, with having lunch with Jesus. He always knows what you're thinking all the time. He responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He's like, you, you guys like Bible trivia, don't you? You like to talk about the Bible. Well, why don't you tell me your interpretation on on something pretty basic? Let's talk about, oh, the Sabbath. You guys probably want to talk about the Sabbath. Maybe that's why I'm here. What's permissible to do on the Sabbath, gentlemen? Again, this would have been a hot topic. I would love to discuss and to debate this. But what is their response there in verse 4? They remained silent. They're not showing any cards here because this is exactly what they want to happen. They're, they're hoping for Jesus to be here and they want Jesus to walk right into this trap and be exposed as an untrustworthy Sabbath breaker. That he's a heretic. That he's going to undermine the very Word of God. That's what he's doing with all his, his tricks. I think it's really important to notice here, by the way, that Jesus does not care if it's a trap. He does not care how what is about to go down is going to be spun by the religious folk. He does not care that this is going to ruffle cultural feathers here. Jesus came for one reason, to give light in the darkness, and everybody in that room is in the darkness. He didn't care if it's a trap. 
Verse 4. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. Each of those words are worthy of some reflection. They, he took him. The word, is, it's an interesting word. To, to take, it means to pull close or to embrace. Now, Jesus did not just speak a word to this man. He didn't just prophesy over him. Jesus didn't tell him, hey, just get up and get fixed up, get it together, and then come back. He didn't do any of that. Jesus grabbed the man. He embraced the man in his state of affliction, and he drew him close, and he showed him great affection. This is one of the amazing things about Jesus. When you watch the way he will so often touch the person you're not supposed to touch. He can do long-distance healings. You see him do that all the time. But with the leper who comes up and everybody scoots away, Jesus draws near and touches. With the man who's got dropsy here, who would have been on the outcast, the outlist, Jesus comes and embraces him. And when he embraced him, he healed him. Jesus miraculously did what no one else has ever been able to do for this man. You've got to remember that this is not just a story with a dude who shows up at a party. That was a real man. For those of you who know physical affliction and know what it's like to live with pain, constant pain, not being able to roll over at night, but not being able to sit down, not being able to walk, the pain that this man felt in an instant was gone because Jesus touched him. That either should move you to worship this Jesus or burn this book because it's nonsense. He freed this man from the brokenness and the curse that sin brought on the world. And the way that Jesus did it was done in such a way that there's no doubt where it came from. It's not like the Pharisees can be like, well, he had some of our bread, so certainly it was our bread that did it. Jesus would be like, no. He held this man and healed him. Which, by the way, you'll remember, since it's been a while since it's been in Luke, the reason Jesus does miracles is not for show. He does it to prove he has authority to say the things that he's saying. This is to prove that he has authority to say what's right and wrong on the Sabbath. And then thirdly, he sent him away. Ministry was complete with him for the moment. The man who had dropsy had been healed, and he had learned the lesson that Jesus is the healing Lord who is able to free even the most afflicted people, that he's the one who gives the real rest that the Sabbath is a picture of. This man learns that lesson, and Jesus says, go on your way, because now Jesus needs to deal with a room full of people who needed to learn the same lesson. They too needed to be ministered to by Jesus, but the problem was that they didn't know it like the man who had dropsy knew it. So he turns to them, verse 5. He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? <laughs> I, love, I love watching Jesus do He turns the tables on him. The guest now becomes the instructor. They've been trying to trap him, but he's about to trap them. He asks a question about how they practice compassion. How do they practice service on the Sabbath? If your child, he says, or if your ox, which have been your livelihood, fell into the well, what would you do? Would you not help them? Would you just stand over them with rules and say, well... If you'd obeyed the Sabbath, you wouldn't be drowning right now. Is that what you would do, Jesus says? That's the spirit of what he says. I think it's interesting. There's a, no, there's, a, there's, a, there's a play on water here. You've got the man with dropsy whose body is taken over by water that Jesus frees. And now he asks if these people the Pharisees, would free somebody taken over by water. It's an interesting play. Because they're going to accuse him of what he did with the man with drops. He was being wrong, but he's going to show him that they would have done the same thing. Verse 6, they could not reply to these things. 
Why couldn't they reply? Because the answer to Jesus' question is obvious. Of course they'd help their son. Of course they'd get out the ox from the water because God would be displeased if they, they didn't. And then, now if that's the case, then what does it imply? That Jesus was right to heal the man who had dropsy. And what does that imply? That it's actually Jesus who knows the way to God, not the religious leaders. That it's actually Jesus who has the authority of heaven, not the religious leaders. They brought brought Jesus in to make him look like a fool, and what has he done? He's turned the tables and made them look like a fool. Jesus was a master at what John Henderson calls spiritual jujitsu. That's a jujitsu is a martial arts deal where you, you use someone else's momentum against you. Somebody throws a punch and you grab it and flip them and, you know, choke them out. Well, this is exactly what Jesus does all the time with people. They throw punches at Jesus, but he grabs it, flips it around, and next thing they know, they're hitting themselves in the head. Jesus used what they tried to use to expose him to expose the sinfulness of their own hearts. And it's interesting because the miracle does exactly what the miracles are always intended to do. It becomes a rebuke and a call for repentance. They should see their own hypocrisy. And they should say, we have sinned. We had ill motives in inviting you over here, Jesus. We brought you in here because we wanted to prove that you were wrong. But once again, you have proved that we are wrong. You are indeed the mercy-giving Messiah, and we need mercy. We're just like the man with dropsy, except it's worse. It's our hearts that are flooded with sin and are taking over our lives. Please forgive us. We have led so many astray. Would we be reconciled so that we can go tell them we were all wrong? Somebody should, should get up. One of the, the leaders should get up and give their seat to the, to the man with dropsy, the humble outcast, and say, no, no, you deserve this. Because that's how things are supposed to work in the kingdom of God. But here their silence speaks louder than words. You see, the Pharisees showed no concern or care for the man with dropsy. But Jesus ministered to him in a way that would have alerted, should have alerted everybody in the room that they need mercy too. You see, they saw themselves as being blessed, but their pride blinded them to the fact that spiritually they were just like the man who needed to be healed. They were in need of, of Jesus. But they couldn't see it because they were blinded with their self-exalting, self-serving, others-crushing pride. Now, before we move on, I, I think it's important for us to note here just how sinister sin is. The Pharisees are so close to salvation, yet so far away. I mean, they're watching Jesus. The very embodiment of the law that they claim to love so much is sitting right there with them. The hope of the prophets that they would be proclaiming is sitting right there with them. But they don't have eyes to see. They know the Bible better than anybody else. And they keep the commands in many ways, but they miss the point of the commands. They're all about the external religious signs and jumping through hoops. They miss the heart of it. That's why elsewhere, Jesus dealing with this same kind of crowd will say in Matthew 9, 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In that opening passage that we heard from Isaiah, God says, I don't need all your religious rituals. I don't need all your sacrifices. What I want is your heart. 
And from that, yes, there should be sacrifices. Yes, from that, there should be rituals. That's fine when it's fueled by faith. It's not just fine, it's worshipful. It's right, it's good when it's fueled by faith. But what these guys have is this empty, dead religion that is all about externals and everybody getting in line on the Sabbath and missing the heart of what the Sabbath is all about, that we're to rest in God and draw near to Him to receive help because we need it, and that's supposed to change the way that we love others and help them in their time of need. They were to have humility before God and love for others. And both of those are absent so far at this meal until Jesus is moved. Now what Jesus is going to do is he's going to move in verse 7 down through 11, and he is going to rebuke the pride of the guests. So he's, he's healed the sickness of this man, and now he's going to rebuke the pride of the, the guests. Verse 7. Now he, again, Jesus, told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'm sure if you caught it or not, but in the last section... The, the dinner guests were watching Jesus, but here Jesus is watching them. And, and he's noticed how they entered the room for this party. They hurried up to take the best seats for themselves. They went after what he calls places of honor. Those would have been seats up close to, to the host. And why do you go after the seats of honor? Because you want to be seen by everybody as being close to that person who has power and who is important. I know him. I know her. They like the red carpet. They, they like the limelight. So they chose, he says. They, they sought out these seats. They hurried to them. Now, the reason all this seat choosing matters is because it reveals something about the heart. Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Basically what Jesus is saying there in Matthew 15 is that everything we say and everything we do flows from the heart. That's why they did what they did with the seats. That's why they did what they did with the man with, with dropsy. So, again, it's backfired for them. The way they, they are exalting themselves with, with, with seat grabbing puts the pride of their heart on display for everybody to see. Now, when we talk about pride, what we mean is that pride is a, a sinful attitude of the heart that is preoccupied with thinking about self. That's what, what pride is. It's a, it's a sinful attitude that is preoccupied with thinking about yourself. In, in your own estimation, you deserve to be focused upon. Now, pride can take two forms. It can take the self-exalting pride, look at me, look at me, look at me, or it can take the, the self-depreciating, uh, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm, I, I, you know, nobody loves me. It's, it's self-pity. It's, it's pride in reverse, if you will. Both of those are forms of pride because the focus is on self. Humility is the exact opposite. Humility is the right estimation of self according to what God says, recognizing that we are dependent creatures, that we are in need of God's sustaining mercy. Well, in our dinner scene, the distinguished guests are marked by self-exalting pride, whereas the man with dropsy was humble aware of his need for help. And Jesus gives a lesson. Not just about seating etiquette here, 
but it's intending to help them to understand how things work in the kingdom of God. Because exalting self to get the best seats, that's not the way you get ahead in the kingdom of God. In chapter 14, again, verses 8 and 9, Jesus gives a scenario in which self-exalting pride actually leads to humiliation. If you make your way to the front and you sit down in a place of honor, but then the host comes and says to you, this seat was meant for somebody else more important, he says, then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. In the original language, it's, 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 it's a graphic picture. You, you, you begin to head for the last seat. It kind of draws out the picture. It depicts the, the humiliation that is felt with every public step away from the front seat, past, you know, leaving behind the seat of honor, past all the staring faces, all the way back to the seat behind the pillar. He says, you're, you're shamed in front of everybody. And, and he, this, this idea of... Uh, a more honored guest showing up late, this would not have been unheard of, right? It's, it's, it was common in that day, as it is now, for to show up fashionably late in order to receive more honor. Oh, we didn't think you were coming. Oh, really? Sorry, I was running behind. Everyone look at me like that. Like that, that self-exalting pride. It's about, it's about me. I just wanted to, to show up and, and draw attention to myself. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that everybody who's late does that. We're, I'm kind of perpetually late, so <laughs> anyway. That's not what's always happening, but it might be happening, so check your heart. Now, for those who deserve honor in this situation, it works out well, but for those who overestimate their importance, it turns out to be humiliating, which is exactly what these religious leaders have done. They overestimate their importance, and they look down on all the lowly people and see them as unimportant. And Jesus says, actually, you got it twisted. It's the exact opposite way in the kingdom of God. That's why he says there, 14.10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. What Jesus here is doing is he's giving a call for true humility. To seek the lowest place. Let others recognize you rather than you promoting yourself. Now listen, y'all. This goes against everything that we encounter every single day of our lives. Everything we see, everything we hear in the world is the exact opposite. The mindset of the world is not like the mindset of God. If you, if you want to get ahead, what do you need to do in the world? You've got to exalt yourself. No matter who you have to stomp on in order to get it, you're going to do it. Meekness is viewed as weakness. Servants can't be trusted because they can be taken advantage of. Now, when things are going well... Gordy and I had a good conversation about this, this this week. When things are going well, it's easier to embrace the kingdom of God ethic. You know, when you're the one who's running the company, you can be a servant, you can be charitable, undercover boss is so fun, you can bless everybody. You know, I mean, it's, it's really, it's kind of it's nice to be a nice boss. But most people are not in that situation. When success is on the line... When there's deals to be done, when there's quotas to be met, when there's bills to be paid, when there's opportunities to be had, when there's promotions that need to be pursued, it can be very tempting to exalt yourself. Now, I'm not talking about not being honest about qualifications that you have for positions and that kind of stuff. That's false humility, which is also a lie, and you should not do that. But what we're talking about here is the temptation that we all feel to manipulate situations, to put your best foot forward, to make yourself appear special and better than than maybe you really are, a manipulative undercutting, a glory stealing, maybe withholding of encouragement of people who rightly deserve it, but you better not give it to them because then they might get recognized and not you. This, by the way, would be a great thing 
for you to be considering over lunch with friends or in the week ahead? What are ways that you are tempted to exalt yourself in your workplace or in your family or on social media or in your everyday uh, interactions? What Jesus wants us to see is that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. Rather, in the kingdom of God, who is big? Who's important? God is. God's the big and important one. So what we're supposed to do, it's it's a call to trust, trust the fact that God sees you. Listen, y'all. God sees you. God knows where you are. He sees the service that nobody else sees. He knows. How tempting is it to forget who rules the universe? It's so easy in the heat of the moment and the pressure of the situation to feel like you've got to control it and exalt yourself, otherwise you're just going to get swallowed up. It's a, it's a call to trust God, to humble yourself knowing that he sees. And what I should do is I should act in every situation in a way that is going to be humble by honoring him and blessing others. Because God knows where you are and he can exalt you if it is good for you to be exalted and if it would be pleasing to him. Listen to this from 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Opposes. It's a military term. God, the ruler of the universe, sets himself against self-exalting, people-stomping kinds of people. He sets himself against them, but he also, at the same time, gives grace to the humble. He looks for people who are saying, God, I'm trusting you here. This is crazy. You better show up. Please help me. Peter goes on to say, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time. But that's hard. Casting all your anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for you. It's like the Lord knew exactly what we were going to struggle with. Lord, I freak out in that position because I feel like I'm out of control. He's like, you're always out of control. But I like to feel like I'm in control. That's bad for you. But he says, stop trying to exalt yourself. Because if you're doing that, you're going to be overlooking the needs of others. God's placed you where he's placed you to be a blessing, to show the kind of love that he has shown you but it's so easy to be consumed with ourselves and our agendas and our own little kingdoms. So I would ask you, what is it right now that you are being tempted to pursue by means of self-promotion, by means of self-exaltation? And again, I'm not, being, I'm not saying don't be honest about what's on your resume or in your portfolio. I'm not talking about that. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that, that attitude of the heart that looks to grab and control and push others out of the way in order to be seen as something. Because he tells us in chapter 14, verse 11, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, this is what I, I never had this in view, with the silly story at the beginning. But that's how I live my life. It was all about self-promotion and doing whatever I needed to do. It was all in good fun is the way I would, I, would, I would pose it. But the fact is that my heart just, I loved me some me. I would use people and manipulate people. That's what I was about. And I would do it with a smiling face. It was, it was just gross. And I didn't fear God. And I didn't love others, no matter how much I claimed that maybe I would. I did. But Jesus here sobers us and reminds us that there is a day when God will oppose the proud and he will exalt the humble. When he will lift up those who trust him, who served him rather than serving themselves. This, by the way, as we we make it through Luke, the theme of reversal is prevalent, really all through the Bible. 
where somebody who seeks to, like, they're going to go out on top, and then God's like, oh, they tripped, and then the humble person is, is exalted. This is the way it happens. Those who exalt themselves or step on others or push others out of the way seem to get ahead, he says, but don't be fooled, because one day soon God is going to set all things right. Friends, keep this in mind, that if you exalt yourself now in this life, on the last day you will be humbled before God in judgment. This is what Jesus wants everybody who's listening to hear. That honor in the kingdom of God is given to those who humble themselves under God's care and who live for his glory, not those who seek to make much of themselves. Again, this parable, just as the miracle was, is intended to serve as both a rebuke and a call to repentance. It exposes the hearts of everybody in attendance as prideful and self-exalting. And if that's the posture that they live from, they will not be received into the kingdom of God. Again, this is a call for humility. And not a humility that's simply about taking the lowest seat. Because you can do that with all sorts of wicked motives. But a posture of the heart that springs from a right knowledge of who we really are. That we see God as infinitely majestic and holy and set apart. That we see Christ in his perfection and the price that he paid for our redemption on the cross. And we see ourselves that before our maker and before the cross that that we have a proper place. And that is the place not deserving of honor but in need of forgiveness. And there we also find great hope because we have a Savior who came to give forgiveness. This is what Jesus came for. A bunch of prideful, self-exalting people like you and me. This is who he comes to rescue. That he humbled himself and went to the cross. Being close to God will not show itself in stepping on others, but rather it shows itself in stooping next to others serving others. True greatness in the kingdom of God is embodied in humility, which is seen in Christ himself. Hear this from Philippians chapter 2. If, by the way, if you're a young Christian and you're trying to think of a place to kind of get started, Philippians chapter 2, this section I'm about to read, is a wonderful place to try to master. And what I mean by master, I don't just mean memorize, though you should, you should memorize it. I'm talking about come And let what you see about Jesus here and what he calls us to do rule every thought. This is a life-giving place. Listen to this from Philippians 2. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind, meaning think this way, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, meaning he he existed as God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he didn't hold on to his rights as God, but, verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So Jesus, the one who truly deserves honor and glory, gave it up to come to rescue us and go to a cross to take the judgment for all the times that we've been a bunch of glory thieves. And what did the Father think about that? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father." The work of Christ, the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the point of Christ's teaching here is to help us to see that we deserve nothing but judgment, yet in his mercy Christ would come and give grace to us. It is to humble us that we might now follow him in faith on that same path of servanthood, making much of God to his glory and serving others. The man people like the man with dropsy would not have been on the Pharisees' guest list. But they're on God's guest list. It's because the values in the kingdom of God are different than the values of the kingdom of the world. This is why Jesus taught Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, being a Christian is not a call to a religious club. 
It's a call to die to self, to follow Jesus, acknowledging that it is God who is great. Now what Jesus does is he moves in verse 12 to talk to the man who invited him. Now some of you at this point are very nervous because you see that we're supposed to go all the way through 24. And you think, oh mercy, I did not pack a lunch. Hang in there, don't worry. We're going to do most of the heart of this section next week when we think about the cost of discipleship. But there's a, big two, a couple big themes we need to see here as we can conclude. Verse 12, he also said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. A couple themes here. The first thing, notice that Jesus says, bless those who cannot repay you. See, Jesus knows what is in the heart of his host. He is a man who is caught up in the worldly web of manipulation where you invite the right people so they can invite you back. Where you invest in the right people because of what the return will be from that relationship. Again, this is not against networking, but there's a way to do it that's all about self and self-promotion, void of God, that is deadly. Because that's not how God does things. When God throws a banquet in his kingdom, he does not fill his table with people who could do anything for him. Rather, his table is packed with a bunch of people who are overlooked by the world. So we, in the same way, are to bless people who are overlooked by the world, those who are ignored because they can't help the economy or sweeten your portfolio. Jesus blessed the man with dropsy, and now he's blessed, or rebuking the elites. It's very backwards from what one might expect. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind here. These are people who are limited because of their physical or social or circumstantial situation. Now, he, Jesus is not saying here that you can never host friends or family or, or wealthy people. But again, he's talking here about a mindset, the posture of the heart. What he's saying here is that we are to have a heart that is humbled before God that gives love, not in exchange for something in return. That love does not seek to be repaid. I mean, think about it. Do, do you regularly serve people who can't repay you? Are, you? are you tempted to size people up as to whether or not they're worthy of your time because of what it might do for you? Now, I also want to say this, that you can serve the poor with a heart of pride. That, you, that really, you want yourself to be thought of as an amazing humanitarian. But, but whether you do it this way or not, where you, you take selfies with, with kids on dirt-floored homes, you can exalt yourself. Or you can have the pride that, that just looks down on all the other people who aren't doing what you're doing. It's just another form of exploiting the poor and the needy. And that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking here about a heart that loves people, that knows that God has given you such grace that can never be repaid. Anything you have is from him, and it's for the good of others, for his glory. And that kind of love is not often rewarded in this world. But that's why Jesus says, fear not, in verse 14, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus brings us back to see things from the end, very much like what the author of Ecclesiastes did. One of the most important realities that we must continually meditate upon is this. This life is not all that there is. There is a day of resurrection coming. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about the fact that there is a day of judgment coming, a day when all people will indeed be raised from the grave and God will judge everyone. 
For those who, who lived their lives for the immediate reward of people's praise and exalted themselves at the expense of others and God's glory, their injustice will be repaid. It is interesting, isn't it? We live in a day with screams about so much injustice, which is good to talk about injustice. But at the same time, nobody's concerned about the injustice that nobody honors God, which is the greatest injustice. But on that same day, there will be for those who humble themselves before Jesus, who repented of their sins and believed upon him and who were forgiven, who lived their lives not perfectly but from faith, striving to pursue humility, show compassionate love for others, God will repay them. There is a day coming that God sees now, and he can exalt in this life, but he will certainly exalt in the life to come. And this is our great hope. Now, just hang with me. I'm going to read 15 through 24 and point out this one thing that ties it all together. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I love this kingdom of God stuff. Jesus, thank you. And Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please uh, have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I will examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now next week we're going to consider all of the excuses that these people had as to why they weren't following Jesus. But in this section highlights the main point of what he's been getting after. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. At the beginning of the story, who looks like they are certain to be eating bread in the kingdom of God? The Pharisees and, and their whole crew, right? All the important religious guests. They're the ones who would have gotten on top. But by the end, how does things look for them? Not so good. Jesus says, I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. You see, God's kingdom is given to the humble in heart, but it is withheld from those who exalt themselves. This is the posture of the heart of the redeemed, one that must be cultivated because our flesh wars against it. There is temptations that abound, but the grace of God enables us to walk in such a way that gives God glory and loves others. And friends, it will be hard to walk that way in this world where everything presses against it. But the hope of the believer is this, that one day soon the Lord Jesus will return and he will make all wrongs right and there will be a resurrection for the just and on that great day there will be a banquet and around that table will not be the elites, but it will be all those who by mercy had their sins forgiven and cried out that we are but beggars of God's grace. May we pursue that sort of humility, not just in theory, but in heart and in practice. May God give us help.